Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptized and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves, uh, you yourselves bear me witness that I have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. God of all mercy and grace, you give us your word because you love us. I pray that you would speak to us, your children, this morning. Your spirit would strengthen our hearts and encourage us for what lies before us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, uh, my, my father-in-law, uh, at the end of his career as a, as a pastor, he became an, an interim uh, pastor for churches. So what would happen is, you know, churches, if they're transitioning um, away from a, a lead pastor, an in, interim pastor comes in and, and hangs out with that church, preaching regularly for a year or two uh, to help the church transition um, to, the next, to the next pastor. He, he wasn't there to be the new guy, but to help, the, help prepare the church um, for the next person to come. And when that day happened, uh, my father-in-law would transition and slowly fade off in the background and move on and help another church. In a lot of ways, you know, this is kind of what John the Baptist's role is in Scripture. He's an, an interim pastor, maybe more accurately, he's a, an interim prophet, uh, which I could, could maybe say that about all the prophets in Scripture. They're there, voices crying out from the desert, preparing the, the way of the, of the Lord to come preparing the way for the long-awaited Messiah. And once that Messiah comes, their, their role, at least some of their role, is, is over. And uh, we find in Scripture that, that John, John the Baptist, is the last of these long line of prophets to come. He, he was the last interim pre preacher preparing the way for the permanent one, uh, preparing the way not just for the one who speaks God's word, which prophets do, they thus saith the Lord, they speak God's word, but preparing uh, the, the way for the one who is God's word in the flesh. Uh, and in this role, the, this final prophet is probably one of the more peculiar characters in the, in the Advent season. In the, the, the church calendar, in the regular readings, John the Baptist comes up often. Uh, but it's, it's strange because, you know, he actually never knew Jesus as a baby. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, I guess, kind of, you know, uh, he met him in the womb, if that counts. Um, but all his John's interactions with us in Scripture, with Jesus, are, are as adults, which is a little surprising. It's not what we often think of when we think of Advent. Uh, but he, he met him uh, when he was 30 years of age, preparing for ministry. And, and this is where he's found in the church calendar. 
And historically, the church has seen John as one of these key figures. And John comes to us with the message to repent. That's what he's, he's a voice crying in the darkness saying, repent, uh, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, for the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. These are not kind of the sweet Hallmark Christmas messages that you, you f- often find. It's why one author, Fleming Rutledge, calls him the, the fire-breathing prophet because he lived his, his whole life speaking these words. Why? So that others would see and believe Jesus. So, so others might actually turn from their lives and follow Jesus. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, I think John summarizes this great idea of following Jesus very well for us. It means simply that he must increase and I must decrease. Uh, you know, and the powers of this day did not like that message. I mean, if you remember, this is why Herod actually kills all the male children in Bethlehem because he thought this newborn king was a threat to him. Um, and, you know, just in general, we don't usually enjoy giving up power, do we? Decreasing is not something that's in our, in our nature. You don't go from big houses to small houses. You, you don't go from being the CEO of the company to being a store manager because, you know, we, I think, believe that increase is always good and decrease is always bad. You know, decrease, increase is something we, we long for. Decrease is liability. You know, and you see here that even John's own followers didn't want to give up the popularity and power they had with them, did they? Uh, they didn't want to give up the power that they had with John the Baptist. Even though John's entire message was, hey, I'm preparing the way, my time's temporary. They're like, no, but we, we like you. We want you to be the, the guy. Um, so much so that they get offended that Jesus is getting more attention than John the Baptist. Which is kind of funny to think about, them getting offended that Jesus is getting more attention than their guy. Um, and this would inevitably happen, I think, with my father-in-law when he was doing interim pastor. I'm sure there's going to be people there that said, no, but we want you to stay. We kind of we like you. But he had to remind them, that's not my role in this. And this is what John does for his followers, what he does for us, is he reminds us of what it means not just to marvel at the one who was born a virgin, but to actually submit our lives and to follow him, to mature in him. And as we consider what it means to follow Jesus with these words from John the Baptist, I think we're going to used John's summary to help frame our passage this morning. So first, we're going to look at this, this, what he says, that he must increase. And second, we're going to look at following Jesus and, and, and what this means, that I must decrease. So first, uh, he must increase. He must increase. You know, the, the first thing that is required to be able to follow Jesus is that he must increase. So what, is, what does this mean? Well, I think the, the first thing we find here is that in order for Christ to, to be increased, to be exalted, the, the first thing we have to know is we have to know who we are in this story. We have to know our place in this story. We, we see this here in verse um, 27. When, he's, when, when, Jesus, when John is talking to his uh, disciples, he says this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In this, you have this powerful line. The first thing we learn about ourselves is not who we are, but who we are not. We are not the Christ. I am not the Christ. You are not the hero of the story. Neither am I. You know, I had a, a professor in seminary, and he had this 
little liturgy reading that we would do um, every day before class. We would say, context is king. And he was, he was an Old Testament professor, and usually when people mess up the Old Testament, because they have no idea what's actually happening um, other than these words, and they mis, misinterpret them. And so he'd be like, context is king. We'd repeat it. And then he said something else that I don't remember about Jesus. I'm sure it was great. And then the last, the third piece was this, I am not the Christ. He made us say it before every class, I am not the Christ. And you know, few, few people have Jesus complexes like pastors. Not me, of course. Um, it's all the other people. Uh, but he wanted us to have this ingrained in us that, listen, you are not Jesus. You're heralds of Jesus. You preach Jesus. You proclaim him. You point people to him, but you're not him. You actually can't fix anybody. And this is what John is reminding his followers. He's basically saying, listen, you won't be able to follow me forever. My time is, is almost over. The sun is setting on me. It is, it is actually good and proper and right that more people are following Jesus. This is what I was sent here for. Uh, to prepare the way that people would follow him. This is, he must increase. He's supposed to, he has to. It's not your job to be Messiah. And I think to follow Jesus means to recognize, at least at first, that you're not the Christ, which means you actually can't solve the world's problems. Like you can't even solve your own problems. That's, but that's not your job because you're not Jesus. You're not the Christ. You don't have the power to change people's hearts. And I think this is often where we, we struggle um, because we want to force the change, don't we? When, when, especially when you see someone destroying their life, when you see relational strife, what do you want to do? You want to go and you want to fix it. But there's this true thing that usually we realize at some point after hitting our head against the wall that you actually can't uh, fix uh, the problems of this world. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we give up on people and we, and we don't seek the good of our neighbor. Of course, we do these things, but it means that your success in that work uh, does not actually depend on you. You can't will success in your life. The first step in following Jesus and having him increase is to recognize first you are not. And once you see that, I think we see hints of actually who we are here. So who are we? Well, we see a little bit of this in verse 29. It says this. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. See this kind of little bit of a confusing structure here. He's basically saying, listen, Jesus is the bridegroom. He is with his bride, which is the church, which is us, his people that are following him. And, and John is the friend of the bridegroom. And in any kind of wedding, what is the role of the, the groomsmen in the bridesmaid? Is it to look better than the, than the bride and groom? No. In fact, when you see that happening in weddings, it's a disaster, right? Uh, it turns into all sorts of fun fail videos on YouTube. But that's not their job. In fact, the, the, the bridesmaid and groomsmen, their job is to actually uh, make the bride and groom look good. They're there to fade in the background so everyone looks and marvels at the bride and groom to magnify them. And John the Baptist is saying, listen, this is my job to magnify him, to point uh, people to this bride. Uh, and what we see is that in this is that we, who we are, is we are actually the bride of Christ. All right, Jesus is the Christ and he has come to marry us, his bride, to make us his own. Which means you are not the Christ, but you are the beloved of the Christ. This is who you are. To follow Jesus, we need to know who we are not and who we are. And I think that the second thing we see here is not just recognizing who we are, but ultimately it's recognizing who Jesus is, that he is the Christ. So what does it actually mean 
for Jesus to say that, for him to say that Jesus is the Christ. You know, the common joke is to say, you know, that Christ isn't Jesus's last name. His middle name doesn't start with H either. Uh, there we go. Uh, but Christ is a, is a title, right? Um, it, it means Messiah. It means anointed one. It's the one that's the long-awaited one that's been prophesied about, the king of kings who's going to come and rescue his people from the domain of darkness, who will restore the world. He's the one that was prophesied about back in Genesis 3 as the one that would come from the seed of the woman. Uh, as the second Adam to, to fix all that is broken, to come and bring all creation under his great and mighty rule. As a king of kings, this is who he is, the Messiah. But look again at this metaphor that John uses to describe Jesus as the Messiah. He's the Messiah and the bridegroom. He's coming to marry his people. What a profound image of a Messiah. He's coming to marry his people to lead us as a husband leads his wife. And in his role of Messiah, he comes to rescue us by marrying us and then brings us into his family. Which means he gets to share everything that he has with us. It's a profound image for us. This is why he has to increase. Because as he increases, so do we actually by virtue of our marriage. For Christ to to increase doesn't belittle you and I, but it actually is the very thing that raises us up. And as it does that, it creates a profound humility in us. um, But as Tim Keller once said, you know, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Right? It's not just being like, woe is me, I, I'm the worst. Uh, but it's about thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more, of letting Christ increase. And this is what happens as we gaze on Jesus and trust him to do his work as a Messiah. He increases. So following him means submitting our lives to him. And you know, I think John the, the Baptist actually understands what's happening here. He sees it most clearly that his time is coming to an end and he's, he's trying to show his followers uh, and he turns, us, turns to us as the readers, saying, listen, the one you've been waiting for is finally here. This is not a competition. You know, and one of the, um, I think one of the more troubling trends in the Western uh, Christian world is the rise of, you know, famous pastors, popularity pastors who try to kind of outshine the, the bridegroom. And these are things that are usually pretty, pretty easy to, to, to spot and uh, make fun of and, you know, of all the things we should mock, we should definitely mock the celebrity pastors so that kind of stuff stops. Um, but it, it isn't just out there that that happens, the, the ones that are easy to spot. I think it's even in here, even in smaller churches like ours that nobody knows about. Uh, even we can struggle with, with these kind of things, caring more about our own name than the name of Christ, caring more about the, the, the name of St. Andrews than, than Christ. We can care more about how our neighbors view us than our bridegroom. This is where this message is good for us that we have to remember that he must increase. Why? Because you are not the Christ. You can't save anyone from their sins. And all, 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 all we can do is remind each other of the one who can. You know, even when people come to me and they share their problems, I think some people probably want me to actually fix them and, and then they're surely disappointed because I actually, spoiler alert, I actually can't fix your problems. Um, but what I can do is I can point you to the one who can, to the one who actually can offer help in times of needs. So the first thing we see here is that Christ must increase. Why? Because he's the only one who can actually do something about the state of the problems of this world. He must increase. And to follow Jesus 
is growing in this in our own lives, of having him increase in all the different aspects of your life, recognizing the Messiah. Which, you know, I think this part of the increase side of things is a pretty simple concept, probably nothing earth-shattering for anybody in this room. But I think um, the, the challenging part is what this demands of us and how we have to live in light of having him increase. Because the flip side of him increasing is that you and I actually have to decrease. Uh, you can't have one without the other. And this is the second thing we see here is that I must decrease. Right? Again, recognizing the power of God and his might isn't hard once you've, you've seen it. Um, for instance, like in, in, in Acts, you get Simon the magician who recognizes the power of God and the disciples are out there healing people. And what does he try to do? He actually tries to buy it. He's like, how much? I'll, I'll, I'll give you some money so I can get some of that power for myself. It's, it's not hard to recognize how amazing the power of God is. Uh, but the power of God is not something you can buy with money. The, the, the ordinary world, the, the order, it, it can't come through the ordinary means of obtaining power. It actually can only be purchased through poverty. It's this kind of upside down nature of the kingdom which we begin to, to find here that it's easy to recognize the power of God but for us, submitting to it is another matter. I, this is, and this is true of actually anytime you follow someone else in any aspect of life, to follow someone else is to decrease your own will. Right? If you have a boss, you've got to submit your will to, to, to theirs. If you have someone over you in any aspect of life, you have to submit your will in some way to the will of the other. Uh, but this is, this is what it means to follow somebody. And to, for Jesus to increase in our life, it means that we have to grow in our submission, our decrease to his rule. To follow someone means we must decrease your visions, your plans. They must decrease as we bring our life in line with the life of Christ. I mean, this is the, the whole of the Christian life and, and our pursuits. This is Christian maturity is growing in this, is growing in this descent into humility. Which begs the question, well, how do we do this? And maybe for some of us here, you might say, well, that actually sounds unhealthy to our modern ears. We don't, we don't submit to other people. That's not what we do. Um, it violates your own unique individuality. So... How could John do that? How did John do this? How, and maybe a better question is, how is this actually good for us to do, to submit our life to somebody else, to decrease, to go down? Well, as we consider this in light of the context here with John, consider the life of John for a second. John had a very successful ministry. He was well-known. He was famous. He was so famous that the king imprisoned him because he, he spoke out against his marriage. That's um, another story. And, uh, but the king wanted to put him to death. Wanted to put John the Baptist to death. But he didn't. Why didn't he put him to death? Because he was too popular. Because the king was scared. Listen, if I put John the Baptist to death, I'm going to make all these guys mad. And they're going to come and revolt. So I don't want that. So we just imprisoned him. And it wasn't until um, that weird story with his you know, daughter dancing, that whole scene, that made that happen. Um, but that's, a, that's an insane amount of influence to say the king is actually scared of you to put you to death. So he's successful ministry, uh, peak in his life. He had power, he had influence. Also, you know, he's the first prophet um, to step onto the pages of scripture in 400 years, right after Malachi, the end of the Old Testament. There's 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and Matthew 1. So 400 years of silence, and then who do you get? You get John the Baptist, Coming out, the, the, the long-awaited prophet to prepare the way for the Messiah. 
And yet this is the guy that says, listen, I'm not the Christ. I, I have to decrease. How in the world can he say this? I mean, imagine being the best at your job, better than anybody in the world. Uh, no one's better than you. you. You have the most popular mom blog. Uh, people are inviting you to teach at prestigious schools, speak at conferences, write books. You know, book publishers are coming at you all the time. You name it, uh, whatever you think is popular. Uh, and imagine at the peak of that moment, walking away from it. You would say, well, that's crazy. And not only to do it, but to, to actually promote someone else who would be a, a competitor to you in the same field. Even more wild. This is what's happening here. And it's so wild to us because the thought of decreasing isn't something that we think about. Because it seems bad. Uh, it's not something we do. At least not on purpose. And obviously this isn't just a modern day problem for you and I, but this is their problem too. It's a driving force of many of the followers of Jesus at this time was they followed him because of what they could get from him. Because they wanted what he could do for them. They wanted his power and prestige. I mean, remember so many different stories of this, but remember the rich man who wanted to follow Jesus. He did until Jesus said, well, you got to give up everything you have and then you can follow me. It's such a tragic story because it says that he walked away sad. All the money in the world, there's one thing he couldn't buy. He wanted the increase, but not the decrease. And I think if we're honest, this is us in various aspects of our own lives. Um, we, we want the increase, but not the decrease. We often want what Jesus can do for us. Eternal life, that sounds good. I don't want to die and go to hell, so that sounds good. No more sin, death, sadness. Sign me up for that. It doesn't take long to convince someone that those things are good, right? But submit my, my will, change my life, reorient the things I, I love and desire around him. I don't know if you've heard this, God, but we don't do that anymore. We love the individual. We can do whatever we want. So how do we do this? How did John do this? The only reason John was able to submit his will and give up all his worldly, earthly goods that we crave and think are good is because he beheld who Jesus was, the Messiah, the light of the world, beholds the Lamb of God. Who is this Lamb of God? Well, the, the Lamb is not just this cute, furry animal. The Lamb is the sacrifice. The one who came to lay down his life like a lamb is led to the slaughter so that you could have life. Behold your king. And when you behold him, submission and humility can't help but follow. So how can you trust that you're not just going to get taken advantage of by this Jesus? How, how can you trust that it's still good to decrease when it sounds so negative? How can we know that this is good? It is only good because of who you were submitting to in Christ. Who is this Jesus? Jesus is the one who decreased so that you could increase. He is the one who stepped out of the glory of the presence of his Father in heaven. Think about all the glory of heaven. The presence of God was everywhere, seated on his throne, ruling from Zion. He stepped out of that place, was born of a woman, was needy as a child, walking, living in the dust, living a righteous life, dying at the hands of Pontius Pilate, was dead for three days, Right, from the throne room of Zion to the end of the tomb, he went. And he rose again, conquering death. He who was rich became poor. Why? That you might become rich. That you actually might have an increase. Because there's, there's never been a, a decrease like the incarnation. Right? Nobody in the history of the world has ever come close to giving up what Jesus had to give up. 
to be born a, a human. And yet there's never been an increase than what you and I have gained in him. His decrease is our increase. It's upside down. It's backwards. It's God's kingdom. Our inheritance in him is eternal. Right? To gain the world, you have to let go of the world. To increase, you must decrease. This is the upside down nature of the, the kingdom that is often backwards to our ears. It's why the wisdom of God often seems foreign to us. But this is the truth that John knew and believed and committed his life to. This is why at the zenith of his popularity, he could confidently say, nah, I'm not the Christ. This is not my job. He needs to increase. I need to decrease. I'm going to fade away. Death comes before resurrection. Because of this, so you and I too can say with John that he must increase, that I must decrease. So what does this, what does this look like for us? I think it looks like a lot of things. Um, I think for, for one, it looks like learning how to practice humility and the way we learn how to practice humility with Christ is submitting all of our lives to him. Or in the context of, of John the Baptist's other message uh, to call people to repent, I think it means to repent and follow Jesus, which means to believe and obey him. So maybe a, a good just diagnostic question to begin to ask yourself as you think about this is this. Where in life do you struggle to believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Where are those places in your life that you maybe cling to the, to the old man struggling with, with regular sin where you try to just white knuckle your way to victory? Friends, you are not the Christ. You can't defeat and conquer your sin on your own, but you weren't meant to. That's why Jesus came, so repent. Receive forgiveness, walk in humility, submit your life to him. Another question is, you know, where are those places in your life that you actually know, maybe, that you actually aren't submitting to God's rule, but you just, you just don't really care? For whatever reason, you don't have time for it. It's this no-go place in your life. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you know, life has taught you that it's not to safe to submit this part of your life to him. So you're just going to do what you want. But when we do that, when we ignore God's call in our lives, when we do whatever we want, what you're saying is, listen, I actually don't want Jesus to increase in this spot of my life. I don't want him to do his Messiah work here. Uh, in the end, I don't, I don't trust that, that he is good. But listen to what Jesus says to you from Matthew 11. He says this. This is, the, this is how you can trust that it is good, even in the sensitive places, to submit. He says, come to me all who, are, who, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The profound words from Jesus. And you guys probably know this, but the yoke there is not like an, an egg yoke. It's from two oxen being joined together, right? And he's the one that's joining with us, making our work light. This is what it means in your life. For him to increase means that he's going to actually carry your burdens. Him increasing in your life is actually the decreasing of your own carrying of your, your burdens and your weariness. It means slowly giving more of your burdens to Christ and finding rest. That's what this looks like. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Uh, often, where he leads you is to the valleys of the shadow of death. Often to the valleys of pain. 
But just as he himself went to the valley of death to obtain life, so he will see us through to the other side when all our pains and all our sadnesses will be no more. This is why you can follow and trust him and know that he is good and submit your life to him because he is the Christ. He is our husband. The long-awaited Messiah has come to redeem the earth from sadness, to marry his people, to redeem us from despair. We must decrease. The Lord must increase. May the Lord increase in our lives and in our church, and may we learn to decrease submitting all of our life to him. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your word. I pray that you would indeed increase in our own lives. That we would learn to, day by day, bring all of our life in submission to your rule, your good and perfect rule, which you rule us with good, with love, with might. Help us to trust you. Help us to know that you are good. Help us to joyfully and willingly follow you wherever you lead us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.